I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And um, our speaker tonight, Alan Weissman, is on another case. It's, uh, he's a journalist, in a sense, a science journalist. And there's been a fair amount of journalism about the present. That's where almost all of it is. Uh, there's some journalism that's about the past. <clears throat> Most of it is sort of archaeology or history. There's very little journalism about the future uh, because it doesn't exist yet. And remarkably, what Weissman did, uh, he had a book with a, a brilliant idea, what would happen if people suddenly weren't here. And then instead of just speculating and talking to people who've speculated, he traveled to cases of that around the world. And in a sense, it is, it's, a, it's a classic long now piece of investigation. This is journalism about pieces of the world that show what the whole world might be under certain circumstances. It's really a unique accomplishment. Please welcome Alan Weissman. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks, Stuart and Long Now, for what you've dedicated yourselves to. What I've dedicated myself to uh, is being a journalist. I was so curious about the world and about everything when I was a kid. I couldn't f figure out what to specialize in. Journalists get to poke their nose into everything and and sometimes live vicariously about what all the really interesting people are doing. Uh, I have not just written about the environment and science, but over the past couple of decades, it turns out that every story ultimately is an environmental story. So what I was saying is that as a journalist, I've discovered that nearly every story ultimately is an environmental story. Uh, we can't have our politics and our culture and our religions, etc., unless we have a planet to stand on. So, as I've been covering the environment, it's taken me to some of the most beautiful places on this planet, and also some of the scariest places on the planet. And sometimes they turn out to be one and the same. You know, places like Antarctica, with an invisible hole hanging over it, or the tropical forests in our equatorial region, but I'm also there to cover the, uh, the fires and the chainsaws and the coca cultivation and agriculture that's bringing them down. Or places like um, my father's homeland, Ukraine, with topsoil that seems to go down forever, but also a Chernobyl disaster. You begin to understand that these are disasters are not discrete events, but they're all somehow connected. And the connection comes through us. So 
with my privileged position of having seen so much, I decided that I wanted to write about the fact that really in a global environmental crisis, problem though with that, to really describe something that's going on planet-wide, it's gotta be book length. Uh, an article just isn't gonna have enough detail. But the fact is, there are many great books about the global environment, but they're usually read by people who already know about it, or the people who are writing them themselves, because for the rest of us, I mean, who the hell wants to come back from a hard day and kick back with something, you know, a book, which is a real commitment of time, uh, a book that's basically going to scare the hell out of you or depress you, uh, and think, oh my God, are we all going to die? You know, I certainly don't. So I thought about this for quite a while. How could I write without dumbing it down or oversimplifying? How could I write a bestseller about the environment, something that a much wider audience would, would read? And then thanks to a suggestion from an editor who had seen something that I had written and I hadn't really gotten the point myself of what it could imply, it basically comes down to this. If the bottom line is a lot of people who, even though they are impacted by the environment or they're part of the package that is impacting the environment, don't want to read about it because, you know, oh my God, are we all going to die? Why not just kill everybody off right in the beginning <laughs> and then we don't have to worry about that anymore? Uh, but then we get to hang around uh, through the artifice of literature and see what happens next. And we're all kind of suckers for the future. So... Basically, what I did in, in the book that came out of this idea, The World Without Us, uh, I dispense with us in about a paragraph. And this is not an apocalyptic book where, you know, we go down agonizingly and drag a bunch of other species with us uh, or nuclear holocaust. And I just imagine enough enough so that it's theoretically possible so it's not science fiction, because lots of people won't read that either. But so remote, that's probably not going to happen tomorrow. For example, AIDS. Suppose instead of being passed by fluids, it goes airborne and we all get it. Or some evil genius figures out some way to sterilize our sperm. Um, or lots of people believe in the rapture, so perhaps Jesus or space aliens you know, take us away either to our heavenly glory or some zoo across the galaxy. But, but whatever, just imagine suddenly we're gone. How would the rest of nature behave without the constant pressures we heap on it daily? To what extent would it come in and invade our spaces? I mean, could it actually wipe out all of our traces? But what would it do with some of the things that we would leave behind? Uh, you know, like everything from chemical plants to laundromats that eventually would go off like little time bombs and leach their uh, poisons into, into the ecosystem. Or all this carbon dioxide that we've pumped up our chimneys and our exhaust pipes. How long would it take for that to get reabsorbed? Ultimately, as Stuart said, I ended up going all over the world to find out what the answers were to people who study this stuff, to people who just live in various kinds of environments where 
they have an opportunity to respond knowledgeably to my question of what would happen if you weren't here? What would happen if nobody was here? And it turned out to be a very, very revealing and surprising experience. But I'm going to take you through some of it right now. But keep this in mind, because the question that I leave hanging right at the beginning of this book is that since we're imagining here what would happen in a world without us and seeing how nature might come back, is there any way that nature's rebirth, reflourishing, might possibly include us? Is there any way that we might still be a part of the picture? Well, I began in a place where, which I thought was going to be extremely strange and unfamiliar. Uh, and yet, I learned something unexpected right there. I'm just going to read you a very, very small fragment. Uh, you may never have heard of the Bioviesia Pustja, but if you were raised somewhere in the temperate swath that crosses much of North America, Japan, Korea, uh, several former Soviet republics, parts of Eastern and Western Europe, including the British Isles, something within you remembers it. Puszcza, it's an old Polish word that means forest primeval. Straddling the border between Poland and Belarus, the half million acres of the Bioviesia Puszcza contain Europe's last remaining fragment of old growth lowland wilderness. Think of that misty brooding forest that loom behind your eyelids when as a child someone read you the Grimm Brothers fairy tales. And here you've got ash and linden trees that tower nearly 150 feet with these huge canopies shading a moist tangled understory of hornbeams and ferns, swamp alders, fungi the size of crockery, oaks shrouded with a half a millennium of moss grow so immense here that woodpeckers will store spruce cones in their three-inch deep bark furrows the air is thick and cool and draped with a silence that parts briefly for a nutcracker's croak, a pygmy owl's low whistle, or a wolf's wail, and then returns to stillness. Now, this is a place, these half million acres, that provide for weasels and pine martens and raccoons and badgers and otters, fox, lynx, Wolves, deer, elk, eagles, bison, European bison. I had no idea until I was there and 15 of them encountered me. Uh, more kinds of life are found there than anywhere else on the European continent, except there's no surrounding mountains or sheltering valleys to form unique niches. The Bioviesa Pustia is simply a relic of what once stretched west to Siberia, or east to Siberia and west to Ireland. Now, the existence in Europe of such a legacy of unbroken biological antiquity unsurprisingly owes to high privilege. Uh, during the 14th century, a Lithuanian duke married the queen of Poland, became king, and named this place his royal hunting preserve. Uh, a succession of Polish kings and then Russian czars after them kept it that way. 
things got a little convulsive uh, in the 20th century. Uh, after World War I, uh, Poland named it a national park, but then in came the Soviets, and they started logging in there. But then, oddly enough, to the rescue came the Nazis. Uh, a guy named Hermann Goering, great lover of life, uh, like like those royals before him, you know, named it a preserve only for him and his buddies, and and, and kept it that way. Uh, at the end of World War II, the Polish scientists who took me into this place explained that some of uh, their predecessors apparently got Joseph Stalin really drunk in Warsaw and convinced him that it should be a national park. So that's as it remains today. Now, obviously, it's amazing to think that all Europe once looked like this place. But the reason that I wanted to tell you about it is that to enter it is to realize that most of us were bred to a pale copy of what nature intended. Because when you see these alders with trunks that are seven feet wide, or you walk through stands of the tallest trees, which are these gigantic Norway spruce that are shaggy as Methuselah, you think that would seem as exotic as the Amazon to those of us who were raised among the comparatively puny second-growth woodlands found throughout the northern hemisphere. But instead, what's astonishing is how primally familiar it feels, and on some cellular level, how complete. You go in there, and you see these giant versions of the trees that most of us from the Northern Hemisphere have grown up around, and your body's going, yes, wow, like being home. And, And I really do believe that on some level, our bodies do remember. When I started working on this thing, and people would say, so what are you writing these days? And I'd say, well, I'm researching a book on what the world would be like without people in it. The overwhelming response I got from about 90% of the people was, God, does that sound great? (laughs) And then they would inevitably reflect on what they had just said, and and the next reaction was, yeah, but I mean, I mean, wouldn't it be a shame that in order for the world to come to full flower, we would have to go? I mean, you know, we're not so bad. We've done some beautiful things too, and. And, and the more I heard this, I realized this is really what I needed to be writing about. The fact that there's something in us that senses that we had something really wonderful and that we've somehow lost it and we want it back. Now, only after I finished this book did I realize I'm not the first author that's come up with this scenario. Some of you know this book, Genesis, uh, where we start in paradise and then we blow it, and then the rest of the book and its sequel are, how do we get back to it? Um, you know how that one ends, or though that last chapter is a doozy. You've got to read it a lot of times, and it's still confusing. But let, 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 let me tell you where this one goes. I mean, one of the things that I, had, that I, I literally had to do was figure out... Well, I, I just had to tear down the walls that we have erected between us and the rest of nature just to get a sense of how we've become so dissociated. So I'm just going to read you one more small fragment. On the day after humans disappear, nature takes over and immediately begins cleaning house, or houses, that is. Cleans them right off the face of the earth. They all go. 
Now, if you're a homeowner, you already knew it was only a matter of time for yours, but you've resisted admitting it even as erosion callously attacks starting with your savings. Because back when they told you what your house would cost, nobody mentioned what you'd also be paying so that nature wouldn't repossess it long before the bank. Even if you live in a denatured postmodern subdivision where heavy machines mash the landscape into submission, replacing unruly native flora with obedient sod and uniform saplings paving wetlands in the righteous name of mosquito control, even then, you know that nature wasn't phased. Because no matter how hermetically you've sealed your temperature-tuned interior from the weather, invisible spores penetrate anyway, which is awful when you see it. You guys explode in these sudden outbursts of mold, and worse when you don't because it's hidden behind a painted wall and it's munching paper sandwiches of gypsum board and rotting studs or floor joists. Or you've been colonized by termites, carpenter ants, roaches, hornets, small mammals. But most of all, though, you are beset by in what other context is the veritable stuff of life, water. It always wants in. And... Uh, I go into a discussion here that those of you who have a roof with a warranty know that that warranty never counts around the chimney or the skylights. And eventually water gets underneath. And if we're not there to do something expensive, all <laughs> kinds of things start to happen really quickly. And that's even if you're using some of these newer materials, you know, like these bonded resin uh, substitutes for plywood that are all these little timber flakes and all that, um, or hardy planks or all these things. N n turns out that newer isn't necessarily better. Werner von Braun, the German scientist who developed the U.S. space program, used to tell this story about Colonel John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth. He says, Seconds before liftoff, with Glenn strapped into that rocket that we built for him and man's best efforts all focused on that moment, you know what he said to himself? Oh, my God, I'm sitting on a pile of low bids. <laughs> well, mo most of us are in most of our homes and buildings, we're sitting under them. And... Uh, and in some ways, okay, you know, we're using fewer resources by building things out of, you know, cheaper materials or stuff that we glue together because those old big timbers for posts and beams, most of them are gone. But uh, as I discovered in many different venues all over this world is that the stuff that is built for, you know, the, the lowest possible bid that legality will allow ends up being the fastest to come down. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the gory detail here that I do in this book. It's briefly, it's a mercifully brief chapter, but, uh, but suffice it to say that if you have a very old house that's built out of big stones, chances are that's going to last longer than most of what we're building right now. Um, without us around to maintain these things. Within a century, an abandoned house, as 
the water gets in there and the nail hole, it enters through the nail holes and they rust and they start losing their grip and pretty soon the roof starts shifting and the walls start. Most of the stuff's going to be lying on the ground within a century or it's going to be leaning pretty badly. Masonry houses, of course, will last longer, but the mortar is already going to be crumbling and the bricks are going to be dropping. The things that last the longest, your bathroom tile, uh, might be on the ground, but it's uh, chemically very close to being a fossil, and uh, as long as something doesn't crush it, it's going to be there for a long time. Stainless steel, uh, if it's buried away from oxygen, uh, might have a few hundred thousand years in it, but ultimately, all these materials that we have, through some technology, kicked up into a higher energy state, find their way back to it. Now, it's one thing to imagine a house coming down, but what about these enormous cities, you know, such as the one that we're in? I mean, the infrastructure seems so impressive, so overwhelming, that it's very hard to imagine something made out of as much concrete and steel as, say, Manhattan ever reverting to a forest the way it was when Henry Hudson first saw it in 1609 with just a few Native Americans living around the, uh, the perimeter. So that was the question that I put when I went there. I chose it because it's the universal city. Everybody's either been there or they've um, seen it in films. Uh, and, and it's the quintessence of artificiality. And I, and I talked to architects, urban planners, civil engineers, mechanical engineers, maintenance personnel from bridges and tunnels and, and, and botanists and biologists. And 100% of them said not only could it revert to a forest, but it absolutely will someday. Uh, it was demonstrated to me rather graphically how this would happen by subway maintenance personnel who took me down through the bowels of Manhattan and Brooklyn and showed me what they have to contend with, which is basically the underside of fairly recent history. Until the 19th century, Manhattan still looked like what that name, which was an old Algonquin term, uh, meant, which was hilly. Uh, and the hills that made up Manhattan Island were all drained by about 40 streams and rivers that ran between them. In, well, just to give you an idea of what it looked like, uh, where the Plaza Hotel is today, south end of Central Park. That was a big, long lake, uh, shallow, attached to a salt marsh that ran to the East River. To the west of that was a big ridge line, one of the highest places on the island. It was sort of a deer and mountain lion path, uh, and it had streams going off to the Hudson or again to the East River. Uh, today we call that Broad Ridge Line Broadway, but it's no longer elevated because... Uh, in the 19th century, everything north of Greenwich Village got flattened down to superimpose a grid of streets on it. So all those streams and rivers got buried. And though a sewer system was put in basically to imitate the way that nature used to wick water away, we never quite do it as efficiently as nature does. So what these subway engineers showed me is that along with the normal groundwater that a rainy climate like New York gets, they're dealing with these buried rivers, and they have to keep 800 pumps going nearly all constantly 
to pump away, even on a sunny day, 13 million gallons of water that's trying to flood the system. And I said, so what happens when you guys aren't here? Or what would happen if nobody was here and you know, the power companies stopped delivering power to the pumps? Well, they've had to deal with those emergencies a lot in power failures, and they end up bringing trucks with diesel-powered compressors that they'll run hoses down the... Um, the subway steps to pump stuff away. But if nobody ever came back, within 36 hours, the subways would be flooded. And if they didn't show up then to drain them, things would get waterlogged. And the steel foundations of skyscrapers in New York, uh, which are anchored to the Manhattan schist, they were not intended to be waterlogged. Uh, they would become destabilized. Come along a hurricane, New York's had them before, and it'll have more of them in the future, it looks like. Uh, a destabilized building, when it falls, it's sort of like when a tree crashes in the forest, brings down more with it. But even long before that, just the columns holding up the, plat the ceiling when you're standing on a subway platform, otherwise known as the street, those columns within 20 years would be buckling and caving in and the streets above them and then there'd be rivers on the surface of Manhattan again. And then something really amazing would happen. Uh, very quickly, they would spring to life. Birds, there'd be a lot more birds. Uh, I have a whole chapter on birds in this book. Many things happened to them with us here, such as just in the United States alone, 75 million of them end up on our windshields or our radiator grills. So add 75 more birds back into the, into the picture. They'd be dropping herring and clams, which also would be proliferating again in the harbors and the rivers. And, and stuff would fall into these, into these, you know, where the 456 line is. That would now be the Lexington River. Uh, you know, and miraculously stuff would come to life. It turns out that wherever I went for this book, any place where humans turn their backs, life, other kinds of life, appears and begins to proliferate. At one point, I'm with this guy who has, he was in charge of three of the biggest bridges that connect Manhattan to the mainland. And he said, you know, it's, it's incredible. You can't think of, it's hard to think of something more sterile than the intersection of two two-inch thick steel plates. He says, but every time we turn our back, some bird flies over, poops out a seed, and the next thing we know, there's this ailanthus tree whose roots are tearing apart the George Washington Bridge. He says, one way or another, he says, you know, we are in a battle against nature, a constant battle, which ultimately we are going to lose. He says, my job is that it doesn't happen on my watch. <laughs> well, in the streets... Um, Meantime, there'd be no personnel who would be uh, cling, clearing out the plants that show up in the cracks in the sidewalk every spring from seeds that are constantly blowing through the city, and they'll start to tear apart the sidewalks. Nobody would be unclogging the sewers. An innumerable number of plastic bags would have them clogged. They'd be filling up with leaf litter. Plants would be germinating there. They'd... They, their roots would go right through the asphalt. Uh, you would start to get saplings growing in the streets. There'd be no firemen, so finally when a lightning strike hits something, 
some dead branches or whatever, there's going to be a fire, and then you're going to have uh, insulation burning in adjacent buildings because every building superintendent told me, just like, as I mentioned before, your houses, on the roof, particularly these flat roof buildings, water eventually leaks in, and if you're not stopping that, that steel reinforcing bar, the steel the rust will begin to form and it expands and it pops facing off this insulation that will be exposed. That will burn. Papers in the offices will burn. That's good because it will add carbon to the soil. So the first plants that come in will be kind of acidic tolerant, uh, but now more kinds of species will be able to enter. And eventually, within Within 500 years, New York is basically going to be a foresting again, growing up through the ruins of buildings. The oldest buildings, uh, again, the ones made out of the stuff of Manhattan itself, um, St. Paul's Chapel, uh, right across from the World Trade Center, made out of Manhattan Schiff's first building there. It'll probably be the last. It didn't even budge when those planes hit. Um, Bank vaults will probably last longer, even when the banks are gone. But mainly, you're going to have a forest growing up. And by the way, this happens in arid climates too. At one point in this book, I go to the island of Cyprus. Uh, During the early 1970s, Greek Cypriot money built a beach resort on the eastern side, the side that faces Syria, just like an Acapulco, it's about five kilometers of tall hotels, reinforced, you know, still reinforced concrete structures with balconies hanging over the sea. And um, then, unfortunately, a couple years later, war broke out in Cyprus. Uh, when the UN brokered a truce, uh, the, the two sides, it was the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots, the Turkish Cypriots were given the north and the Greek Cypriots the south. Uh, And this thing ended up in Turkish Cypriot territory. Well, the Turks very intelligently realized that this valuable piece of real estate would be a great bargaining chip when the island got around to reunification talks. So instead of letting people go in there and colonize, they just put a fence around it. Sadly enough, 30-some years later, this has not been resolved. And this big resort is still behind this now rusting fence. Every building in there, very few people have gone in there. I was fortunate to get some glimpses myself and be taken in and to talk to several people who who, who have seen all of it. The building, the hotels are now occupied, but they're occupied by rats and by pigeons and all stuff. And they bring in uh, fruit, and then they poop out a seed. And next thing you know, you've got trees growing right out the roof and the windows. The uh, hotel lobbies are filled with sand dunes. Uh, There are vines growing across the streets. Even though this is an arid climate, wildflowers, cyclamen, have pushed their way straight up through concrete streets. You see fields of flowers now in the middle of the streets. The only thing, none of these buildings, and they're only 30-some years old, is salvageable anymore. They would all have to be bulldozed. The only thing that looks really great still is the beach. It's in fine shape, and it is being used by an awful lot of sea turtles. 
Well, in Manhattan, I wanted to know, if this thing reverts to a forest, would it be the same forest that was there when Henry Hudson, uh, when Henry Hudson uh, saw it? And it turns out, no, it won't be for a couple of reasons. Some of it, yes, there will be some native species, though with climate change, you know, we don't know whether the native species will end up being palmettos and magnolia trees coming up from the south. It's hard to say. But right now, uh, you can go to New York Botanical Garden, which is right across from the Bronx Zoo. Some of you have been there. There's a 40-acre plot of old-growth, uncut New England forest there. Except nothing of the original species like oaks and hickories and, and beeches have regenerated in the last 80 years. Um, partly because there have been so, so many industrial and automobile fumes, etc., that these trees have been weakened and they can't fight off a lot of the opportunistic diseases or insects that are coming in. The other reason is that being the only patch of green that, uh, you know, for miles surrounded by all this concrete gray Bronx, every squirrel in the Bronx now lives there and they eat all the hickory nuts and acorns before they have a chance to germinate. What is growing there, though, very well, uh, is stuff that squirrels were not adapted to, uh, to eat, and that is the fruit of things that have blown in. Ornamental plants, like, again, Chinese ailanthus trees, cork trees, uh, waxberry trees, a lot of these oriental ornamentals that now are more than half the plants growing in this original forest. And the botanist um, who took me out there, a guy named Chuck Peter, says, you know, everybody wants me to put the forest back the way it was 200 years ago. I say, you know, put the Bronx back the way it was 200 years ago, maybe we have a chance. But he said, look, he said, think of it this way, you know, it might not be so bad what we have here. First of all, what makes New York a great city is its cultural diversity. You know, everybody has something to offer. But botanically, we get so xenophobic. We love native species and we want all these exotics you know, to go back where they came from. And he said, look, this might sound blasphemous, but maintaining native biodiversity is less important than maintaining a functioning ecosystem. What matters is that soil gets protected, that water gets clean, that trees filter the air, and that a canopy regenerates new seedlings to keep nutrients from draining away down the river. Now, this is a guy who has spent his career going to forests all over the world, and his research has revealed to him that when he runs into a grove of wild palm nuts, like Brazil nuts, deep in the Amazon, or durian fruit trees in virgin Borneo, or tea trees in Burma's jungles. Those aren't accidents. Once, humans were there, too. The wilderness swallowed them in their memory, but its shape still bears their echo, as will our forests, which in some ways is a comforting thought. Uh, I got an opportunity to see some of these places that we have changed so much and to see how nature eventually does smooth out our edges. One of the most dramatic places I went was to the Korean demilitarized zone, which, as most of you know, in a 57 years ago, was this battle-ravaged piece of scorched earth that 
became a buffer zone between two warring sides that were basically carrying out a hot surrogate war of the Cold War. Communist North Korea and to the south, I guess, our Korea. Um, At the time, nobody imagined that this piece of land, which is about 150 miles long, it bisects the Korean uh, peninsula and two and a half miles, four kilometers wide. No one imagined that 50-some years later, it would still be a no-man's land. What they really didn't imagine was that this rather scarred territory would, in just half a century, revert to wilderness so quickly that today it's accidentally one of the most important wildlife refuges in all of Asia, home to some of the most endangered species on the continent. At one point when I was there, um, and I went in with some Korean scientists who had access, and we're standing up on a promontory uh, at a um, at a military station, which every in a few kilometers or so, there are these big gun placements where the South Koreans are pointing their weapons at the North Koreans who are pointing them right back. And two of the biggest, most hostile armies in the world are lined up along this thing, pointing guns, screaming obscenities at each other through loudspeakers. And in the midst of this, this ornithologist points to me, or points out to the west and directs me to look at what I thought was a squadron of fighter planes coming in until as they came closer, I realized I was looking at one of the rarest sites on Earth. Uh, the red crown crane, which next to the whooping crane, is the rarest. There's maybe 1,500 of them left, and most of them winter in the Korean DMZ. And in the midst of all these seething hostilities, these things come gliding in. And, and this is a bird that, even though it's so rare, you've all seen this thing because... It's, it's got a cherry cap and, and black extremities, and the rest of it is just sort of white and pure as innocence itself. It's, you see it continually in Chinese painting and Japanese art and Korean silks. It, it, it's like a mythical bird of the Orient. Uh, it refers to longevity and luck. And these things just silently glide in, and they settle down, and they're light enough that they don't touch off the landmines. And... And, uh, and, and they feed on this restored wilderness, and, and there's juveniles, so they're breeding. I mean, it's just, for a writer, it's like being in the middle of a metaphor to watch this thing. <laughs> you know, the Korean scientists I was with, none of them would uh, admit to praying against peace. But, you know, in fact... If it weren't for this suspended state of war between the two Koreas, you've got 20 million people in, south, in the suburbs of Seoul who are banging up against the south side of the DMZ. And North Korea is building industrial parks, and the developers have their crosshairs on this thing. I mean, they would love to get it. And it would be a negligible cost to them to sweep away the mines in terms of what this real estate is worth. Unless 
as these scientists and scientists all over the world, including in this country, have been trying to convince the two Koreas to do a wonderful thing for the ecosystem and for the world, to declare this place an international peace park, um, which would be the salvation of a lot of creatures. Uh, of course, if there were no people left on Earth, then the whole Korean Peninsula would be a peace park. In fact, so would the whole planet, I guess. But So, well, I'll let you draw your conclusions from that. Um, one of the things that I was interested in is what materials have we created? What, what would be the longest lasting? And at one point, I um, go down to an, a landscape that's even more artificial than Manhattan. Uh, and, and you've all seen fragments of this, but the longest one in, on Earth is the one that I went to, which stretches from Houston down along its ship channel to Galveston. I refer to it as a petroscape. And, you know, it's just this just continuous line of pipelines and storage tanks and cracking towers and flares and just all this petroleum infrastructure. And it was really kind of fun talking to both people in the petroleum industry and Texas ecologists as to, you know, this stuff is not that old. You know, it's barely over a century. You know, how long would it last? What used to be here before? And, and how long would this stuff last? It turns out it wouldn't last all that long if we were to dis disappear. Uh, even though it looks so formidable, uh, hydrocarbons, crude petroleum, this stuff is pretty, it's pretty aggressive and corrosive, and they constantly have to replace uh, parts. The... The maximum lifespan for anything down there is about 20 years. And if no one's there painting it, uh, you know, it's going to start to crumble and it's going to start to corrode really fast. Um, in fact, well, I never overtly come out and say it in this book, but it's, it's a subtext that follows so much of it that it's been pointed out to me. It's one of the reasons why this book, I'm grateful to say, did become the bestseller. I, you know, I hope that it would. And, uh, in fact, it's out in 33 languages now. But, but even in this country, I haven't just been on NPR shows. I've been on a lot of conservative talk shows. And one of the reasons that conservative talk shows seem to like it, um, well, one they say is, you know, this guy's not some environmentalist making us feel guilty. He just shows you all this interesting stuff and lets you decide for yourself. But also, I mean, there's this subtext that, you know, I interviewed hundreds of people for this book. Turns out I never interviewed any politicians. N that wasn't by intention, but they don't have much to do with holding together society, you know. <laughs> I mean, if they disappeared, you know, I'd keep writing, we'd keep trading, you know, you know li life would go on. But you get rid of the maintenance personnel, the people who keep our subways pumped, who keep our, our, bridges, our bridges painted so they don't start popping rivets and drop, which is what would happen rather quickly, or show up to keep, make sure that our power plants don't explode, you know, be they, be they coal-fired or petroleum or, or whatever. You get rid of them everything collapses. They're really the unsung heroes of, of our society and certainly of my book and, and, a, and a lot of conservative talk shows. You know, 
realize that you know this is part of their audience and uh, and we really have to appreciate those people because they are the bedrock upon which our society stands so anyhow the what would happen without them is depending on how fast uh, if someone banked the fires before the thing exploded, before all humans disappeared, if they did that, then the stuff would just sort of gunk up, and then all that steel would corrode fairly quickly, and then we'd have a real mess, meaning that all that oil and stuff that's inside of all those things would end up in the Gulf of Mexico, which would be a pretty yucky oil spill. Uh, except that's by our frame of reference and our time frame. Nature's got microbes that knows what to do with crude petroleum. And though it would take a long time, a thousand years or more, nature's got all the time in the world. And that stuff would get eaten. And it would eventually, it, eventually you'd have a bottomland forest uh, as you did before. Um, what wouldn't go away so quickly, though, is something that in recent years we started to derive from these hydrocarbons, recent years being the last century. Many forms of it, we know them collectively as plastic. Uh, as a plastic expert explained to me, the, it's sort of like when the first tree trunks appeared on the planet, the first trees made out of lignin and cellulose, microbes didn't have the enzymes to break down lignin. They weren't all that good with cellulose yet either. So they, the first trees would just sort of lie there on the ground. They wouldn't decay. And eventually a lot of them got buried and so much pressure on them that, that they turned into much of what we call the carboniferous layer today. So plastic, even though eventually microbes are going to figure out, since we've made billions of pounds of the stuff, that there's a feast to be had, they will develop the enzymes to break it down. It may take 100,000 years or more. In the meantime, most of the plastic, that's, except for what's been incinerated, is still around. And, you know, we know, again, in geologic time, that ultimately everything, the Himalayas, Sierra Nevadas, they all wash to the sea, but we can't put our minds around that. In our lifetime because plastic weighs a lot less than rocks, it turns out that plastic is not just hanging out in our landfills. It blows down our gutters and, on and winds and streams, and it turns out that much of it is going to the sea. Uh, at one point in this book, I go to where there are these huge floating rafts of plastic out in the oceans the size of small continents. And even though plastic you can break those polymers and break it into smaller pieces of plastic. Sunlight will do that, you know, on plastic sheeting you leave out. In the ocean, stuff is breaking down into smaller and smaller pieces of plastic. And um, that's getting either filtered or mistaken for food by smaller and smaller creatures. It's now no longer just some seabirds and sea turtles dying of constipation with four or five pounds of plastic in their gut, but it's stuff all the way down to the size of zooplankton. What the environmental impact of this will be, we have no idea. This is one of the unintended consequences of something technological that we did, you know, 
the idea of something light and durable was seemed like a good idea, but it now turns out that it has kind of a dark side. Uh, something else that I looked at was radioactive materials. Um, I was interested in you know, nuclear wastes, stuff that's in our, our nuclear plants. Uh, depleted uranium has a pretty long half-life, about the life of the planet, actually. So that means that as, as a human-made artifact, that's going to be around probably till the end of, of, of Earth itself. Um, it's also interesting that you know, as the stuff piles up and we don't know what to do with it, Recently, we've discovered something to do with it. It's so dense that they're making it into projectile points because uh, they're armor-piercing. I mean, your tax dollars and mine are using them in a couple of wars right now, and we're not the only nation that, that does this. But if you think about how much we know about prehistory in North America, it comes from projectile points, you know, that Clovis people, etc. You know, I think of the archaeologists of the future, yeah, I hope they understand these things might be a little bit too hot to handle, but of course, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to warn them. Um, <laughs> the nuclear plants uh, themselves, uh, at one point I go to Palo Verde, which is our newest nuclear plant in the United States. It takes 2,000 people to run the thing. And so I, I said, so what happens when nobody's here if everybody disappeared? And they said, well, you know, the plant automatically shuts down because there's, you know, fail-safe mechanisms. And I said, but I just toured the, the reactors, and you have to keep water circulating around the reactor to, it, it, to cool it. I said, if the plant shuts down, what's going to keep the water circulating? And they said, well, we've got emergency generators. What do they run on? Diesel. How much you got? A week's worth. Well, as long as somebody shows up, maintenance personnel, again, to fix the reactor, no problem. But someday, we're not going to be there. I mean, every species ultimately dies, goes extinct, the same way as every human you know, eventually dies. And unless we figured out some way to decommission these things, uh, what's going to happen is that 440-plus nuclear reactors in the world uh, that are water-cooled, many of them with actually multiple reactors, uh, the heat from the reactor core will take that water that's no longer circulating and it will evaporate it. And then, depending on how much fuel is in it, where it is in its fueling cycle, either you're going to have a big radioactive fire or you're going to get a meltdown. And that'll be an interesting challenge for nature to deal with, 440 Chernobyls. Now, Chernobyl itself is a pretty interesting site, as I think a lot of you probably, you know, probably know. Um, when I went there seven years after the, rea the reactor disaster, uh, already ne nesting swallows were around it, uh, but a lot of the fledglings were... They had these albino flake, uh, flecks on them, and they weren't returning from uh, migration, which either meant that they were more attractive to predators or they were just too weak. Stuff was happening. And there now have been more biological studies. Um, 
uh, in fact, two of the guys, uh, Chester and Baker, both American scientists, uh, were un interviewed not long ago on Ukrainian television, and they said, is, how would you characterize the impact of the Chernobyl disaster on the Ukrainian environment? And they said, oh, it's the best thing that ever happened to it. Uh, it basically, there's this 30-kilometer radius evacuated zone around it, and where human beings aren't, wildlife uh, rushes in. So it's now the most biodiverse spot in all of Ukraine, which is great until you turn on a Geiger counter and you realize that there's some problems here. Uh, but it looks fabulous. I mean, there's hedges that used to be neat landscaping around houses are now overgrowing the roofs, and and moss is covering the roads, and, and tree roots are breaking everything up. Um, what really is interesting to me, though, is that there has been some studies on voles, these little um, these little mice, and in the most recent ones, ones that have come out in the past couple of years. It's confirmed that, like these swallows and other uh, other animals that they studied, that there is genetic damage in their living abbreviated lifestyles, but they seem to be sexually maturing earlier and having bigger broods, which means that nature has figured out a way to respond to a sudden dramatic change in the ecosystem by just throwing out more possibilities that something will either through a mutation or recessive gene will will develop some kind of resistance to this latest change in the ecosystem and so maybe the way that voles are going to evolve in a more radioactive environment is if these turn out to be successful will be these more radiation tolerant creatures it turns out that life has been doing this kind of stuff ever since it appeared on the planet. Uh, at one point, I, I interview um, a uh, scientist from the Smithsonian, Doug Irwin, who's one of the world's extinction experts. And as um, many of you know, you know, the Earth has gone through some enormous extinctions even before humans showed up. Uh, cataclysms where... Well, the Permian extinctions, the granddaddy of them all, 252 years ago, there was a volcanic eruption in what today is Siberia. It lasted about a million years, and all this stuff came up right through the Carboniferous layer. So talk about global warming. I mean, this is fire and brimstone. And apparently at the same time, uh, an asteroid hits Antarctica, and when the dust settles from all this, 90% of all life forms on Earth are gone. I mean, this place is devastated. The only vertebrate left is this little toothed worm, our ancestor. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, eventually, you know, it crawls back onto the land, and there's a few weeds that are growing, and they're pretty scraggly, but as they die, they lay down some biological material, which creates a little soil, and it takes millions and millions and millions of years, but finally the Earth is this fabulous jungle, incredibly lush, with these enormous reptiles that are incredibly successful for over a hundred million years. And it's just sensational until this other asteroid hits what is today the Yucatan Peninsula, kicks up a cloud of dust that kills off about 60% of everything alive, including those big reptiles. But then this rather minor character in the age of dinosaurs, 
sees this empty niche and a chance to expand into it. Uh, and here we mammals are. Well, what about us? Uh, you know, in this book, I don't just talk about ugly things that we've left behind. There's some beautiful stuff that we have done on this planet. It's nice to know that bronze is even more resilient than plastic and that Rodin sculptures uh, are going to last much longer than probably we will. Um, but again, that's kind of geologic time. Uh, and at one point I interview uh, an artist who Carl Sagan and Frank Drake hired to, his name is John Lomborg, to put together this package of sounds and images and incise them on a gold-plated copper record, pen them to the Viking spacecraft that left Earth in the late 70s to tour the outer planets, and now they're off in interstellar space headed you know, for over a billion years easily. They will be carrying with them the sounds of indigenous people's chants and uh, Louis Armstrong's music and the Queen of the Night's aria from the Magic Flute in which the highest note in the operatic repertoire has reached kind of a symbol of how far we can reach. And it's sort of deeply satisfying to realize that long after we're gone that this stuff will still be out there. But again, that's geologic time. What about the Earth as we know it, with us in it? Well, I got an idea um, when I interviewed a guy who's head of something called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Um, you know, basically, this guy's premise, and it's and it's it's not too different from several ecologists who, you know we all know of, has felt that, okay, you know, the human race was a good idea for a while, but now there's so many of us, and we go so far, and we dig so deep, and we, you know, harvest so much that we're literally, you know, we're rejiggering the planet, you know, the chemistry of the land and the water and the atmosphere itself, and we're pushing so many species off the planet. Someday we're going to, maybe we're going to push one too many, something that we didn't know we depended on until it was too late. So why not, he says, just admit it. Okay, it was great for a while, but now it's clearly not working, and let's just stop procreating and just go gracefully. And he said, think of it. He said, every decade, as there'd be fewer and fewer people left, the world would become wilder, more beautiful, and more natural until um, the very last people would see it was be like the Garden of Eden all over again, which was really kind of a disturbing thought because in a sense, you know, it was the premise of my book, The World Without Us, uh, you know, how nature could restore itself. But, but when he said it that way, I mean, it really made me understand deeply that I was not writing this book because I think the world will be better off with us. But because I wanted to theoretically wipe us off the planet long enough so we could see how resilient and literally awesome life is and, and creative and, and how it could restore and refill empty niches and then figure out, isn't there some way that we can be part of this picture too? I mean, I really do believe that we deserve to be here as much as any other species uh, that, that has made it this far. But... He has a point. Um, so, 
you know, we have gotten a little bit oppressive. So I decided, I ended up doing something at the end of this book that I didn't plan to do, which was basically another thought experiment in which I wanted to find out, is there a way, is there some compromise between what he was saying, no more people being born, and what we're doing right now? Which I had to investigate, and I found out that, well, what it comes down to is that every four days there's a million more people on the planet. Which does not sound like a very sustainable figure. Um, it turns at the beginning of the 20th century, there were 1.8 billion people. And then in the last century, our numbers doubled and they nearly redoubled again. Now, for several reasons that I'll discuss in a minute, that rate has slowed down. But it's a little bit like slamming the barn door after the horses are already out because so many people on this planet are so young and they have yet to come into their breeding years that even if they are having fewer children than their predecessors, their parents have, they're still going to push us from where we are right now, which is at 6.8 billion, to an estimated 9 billion, give or take a half a billion, by the middle of this century. Now, that's 50% more of us emitting carbon dioxide, requiring food. So, the new thought experiment I ended up doing was setting social issues aside, attendant social issues aside for the moment. What if we all, starting tomorrow, did the Chinese experiment of one child per family? Well, I called the zero population, or I tried to call the zero population growth movement, which used to be big in the 70s. I couldn't find them. Uh, <laughs> it, it turns out, no, they didn't depopulate themselves out of existence, but, but they did rename themselves. I didn't find out what that new name was until after I was done with the book. Um, but because during the 1980s, the whole issue of population became explosively sensitive from attacks both from the left wing and from the right wing. Uh, from the left wing, part of it was um, a women's rights issue. Uh, women felt that they didn't want governments telling them what to do with their reproductive rights, which is certainly an understandable position. Uh, also, poor countries, third world countries as they were called, their biggest strength was in manpower and they didn't want suddenly mandates coming from some rich countries telling them, you know, okay, you're going to have to weaken yourselves now for the good of the whole planet. From the right wing, well, the best articulation of this is in 1984, World Population Conference, Mexico City, which then was the biggest city on the planet. Our representative, this was under the Reagan administration, James Buckley, William F.'s brother, uh, announced that the United States was pulling its plug on financing family planning programs throughout the world through the UN uh, for two reasons. One was that the money might end up going to abortion. Uh, but the second, he was very frank that he said the United States likes big populations because the more people out there, the more consumers there are for the products of capitalism. Well, um, I found uh, a demographics institute at the 
Austrian Academy of Science that ran some numbers for me. And they were quite surprised at what they found. Uh, remember, 1.8 billion at the beginning of the 20th century. Now we're at 6.8 billion. They found that if we all went to one child per family, within a century, we'd be back down to 1.8 billion. Now, that's a very interesting number. 1.8 billion would leave a lot of room for other species. Might bias a lot of time on this planet to learn how to deal with some of the problems that we have caused. It's also is a very uncomfortable thought. I mean, I'm the second child in my family. Uh, you know, a lot of us have siblings who we love. The whole idea of big families are already be are beautiful. And it also, it seems just impossible. I mean, we're organisms, we're designed to make copies of ourselves. And we have religions that tell us to be fruitful. And also, lately, I mean, some believe that the problem is taking care of itself. As I mentioned, the rate of fertility is really dropping. And there's been a lot of recent books. There's an article just last month in Foreign Affairs Quarterly that suggests that it's taking care of itself because as the world becomes more urban and 50% of us now live in cities, there's need, fewer needs for children. You know, you don't need them to help tend the flocks or the fields. Um, there's also some proof which I've discovered that in places, you know, it seemed really unlikely that population rates are coming down even faster than in China with its draconian measure. Uh, it turns out that, talk about unlikely, I mean, it comes into everybody's mind, you know, Catholics aren't going to let this happen. But in three of the world's most Catholic countries, Ireland, Spain, and Italy, their population rate is down to, it's close to like one child per family. It's about 1.2. Why? Education. Female education particularly. Italy has one of the highest uh, percentages, if not the highest percentage of female PhDs. Women who stay in school defer their childbearing years and then they have fewer children because they've got something else interesting and important to do with their life. Um, there is a fear right now in Europe about, well, with all these countries shrinking and these immigrants coming in, that all of Europe is going to be a Muslim country by the year 2040. I mean, there's a lot of frankly, hate literature about this right now. But there is, you know, there's no question that immigrants, you know, from poor countries have traditionally high, you know, higher percentages of children in their families, at least for the first generation. But there are examples like Iran. We can call this an Islamic Republic. After the Ayatollah Khomeini took over in 1979, be fruitful, multiply, build us a mighty nation, and Iran had the, one of the highest population growth rates in history. But 10 years later when he died, the current Ayatollah Khamenei came in, he and some of the people around him realized this was a problem. So they didn't do anything draconian like China. They just did a patriotic campaign, including a fatwa saying that it might be okay to have a vasectomy if you have enough children. And they made birth control of all kinds, from condoms up to tubal ligations and vasectomies, free and accessible to everybody in the country. And now it's pretty much the model program in the world for family planning. 
Uh, most families have between one and two kids. That combined with opening the universities to women, which unfortunately the current president, Ahmadinejad, is trying to close down, tell the women, get out of the classroom, go home and have babies. Anybody wonder why those protests in the streets of, of Tehran have been mainly female? Well, the books and articles that have been coming out talking about catastrophic population crashes now refer to some very difficult issues. Aging populations, smaller labor pools, fewer consumers for goods. Uh, there is advice now that the U.S. and Europe should start providing incentives to have, for families to have more babies because, and I'm quoting from one of them, lest markets collapse like a Ponzi scheme. Because, of course, Ponzi scheme always need more consumers to, you know, to fill in at the end. Well, what I think that these books and articles are missing is that we're not the only species on the planet. And that we may already be, it's not just a question of slowing down our rate, but that we may already be too many. And that it's not just a matter of slowing down, but it's bringing our numbers back into some kind of equilibrium or harmony with the rest of nature as opposed to mortal combat with it. There were... There's some things that we can do. Some of you who have read Stuart Brand's new book, uh, he does a magnificent job of laying out some of the things that we might be doing to face a future in which we're definitely going to have to take charge. Some technological things that right now are going to be, you know, it's going to take an enormous amount of ingenuity. The reason I put population control as one of the things that we should be thinking of is simply this. It doesn't take any technological leaps. We already know how to do this. Family planning has has worked in the past. And even though the idea seems so unnatural, we are designed to make copies of ourselves, yet we're starting to do some unnatural things for the good of this planet. Wildlife management is now being taught in universities. It sounds like an oxymoron. How do you manage something wild? And yet we know that in our parks, if we don't manage the numbers of keep a balance between prey and predator, uh, the whole thing can collapse. Well, in a sense, we all live in a park now. And I think that one of the things that we have to be doing is learning to manage our numbers because we don't know how to produce enough energy for all of our Chinas and Indias, etc., and all of our vehicles with renewables yet. There may be some limits. So what I am suggesting is that this is something that we have to be considering. I'm going to just close with one little anecdote here, uh, or, or an analogy, an economic analogy, and then in the time left, I'll, I'll throw it open to questions. Um, this idea of the Ponzi scheme, you know, growth, growth, growth. Economy, the health of an economy is always determined by how much is it growing. And yet, as we learned last year, you know, at a certain point, you know, it's artificial. We come up with these strange new mechanisms to keep the thing growing, 
and when it turns out there's not enough people who can really afford mortgages, it will start to collapse. And yet if you hire one of those growth, growth, growth economists to consult to your corporation, what are they going to tell you? The first thing they're going to say is, you know what you've got to do to make your corporation healthy? You've got to get lean. You've got to cut out the fat. So what happens? Monday morning, 25% of the people get this pink slip. This has all happened to somebody we know or it's happened to some of you. Unless the corporation is a humane corporation and instead of brutally bringing itself down to size, it uses attrition. Every year as people move on, retire, some of them pass away, it just recruits fewer people to take their place. It gets more efficient and gradually every year it gets more and more and more healthy as it comes down to a more sustainable size. And frankly, one way or another, that's what's going to happen on this planet too. Every species that reaches the limits of its resource base ultimately suffers a population crash. We managed to avoid that in the 20th century with some very slick technology, some medical technology that helped us live longer or eradicated a lot of things that used to kill us out there, and agricultural technology, starting with learning how to literally increase the amount of plant life that could grow on this planet by instead of using the amount of nitrogen that the sunlight and soil can fix, we dug up nitrogen out of the ground from fossil fuels and we created artificial nitrogen. And then in the 50s, we started cleverly selecting plants that would give much more yield per plant and many more plants per acre. This was the green revolution that was supposed to solve hunger on the planet, eradicate it. But Norman Borlaug, the founder of that revolution, also always would say, along with that, we have to control population. I was just with one of his people the other day uh, at Cornell University, and he said, unfortunately, that part got left in the dust. And as ecologists know, every species will rise to meet the available food supply. So today we've got many more hungry people than we've ever had before on this planet. So, if we just let things go the way they're going, nature eventually is just going to come out and hand out a bunch of pink slips. Now, if you're watching National Geographic and it's, you're seeing survival of the fittest, it's kind of entertaining when it's happening to another species other than your own. But we've come this far, we've done this much, we do create so much beauty. I'm not ready to go extinct yet. And I hope that we, to the fullest extent, take advantage of everything that we possibly can think of to prolong our life so we are in balance and not in combat with the rest of nature, including managing our own numbers in this beautiful parkland called Earth. A peace park, I hope. Thank you very much. Many thanks. Shall we go sit? Thanks. Yeah. An easy question while I look through these is, um, 
Let's see, you, you updated on your book was what, three years ago, four years ago? Yeah, it was uh, July of 2007 is when it first came out. So here you are talking about it. You've obviously been on the case. You go to the various countries where the 33 different languages are, uh, are translating it. So while you're heading toward another book, which maybe we'll talk about, um, nevertheless, you're having to live with this book, in the, this magnificent book in the world. Um, what's, what have you been noticing since then? that you're going, yeah, I got nailed that one, buddy. Uh, and what are the things you're noticing that, ooh, I wish I'd included that, or I wonder if that refutes that part of that chapter, or you know, how is it faring in the, the progressing real world since the book was done? Um, you know, I'm grateful to say that the book has fared well. I mean, I fact-checked mm-hmm. extremely hard, and, uh, you know, there... There was a typo here and there that I wish I had caught in the original edition, but in subsequent ones, it's been fine. I mean, um, some of the things that I really expected to be challenged on really hard just haven't materialized. Uh, The business press has been extremely sympathetic to the book. I mean, other than the Wall Street Journal, who actually did me this great favor about calling it this, the latest eco bestseller that irritatingly keeps climbing the bestseller list or something like that, which, you know, I'll take publicity like that all the time, but but for the most part, people sense that, okay, you know, we've come to some kinds of limits that clearly, you know, we can't keep growing and growing and growing when the thing that we're standing on, the earth, doesn't grow. Uh, There's got to be a point where it will all come collapsing. And, uh, you know, I got into this book because I was very worried about the planet. I'm no longer worried about the planet. It's very clear that the planet is going to do just fine. It's come through worse things than us. And, uh, but uh, the question is the planet with us on it. And, you know, even this population stuff, which I didn't intend to raise at the end of the book, um, but, I mean, just to give you one example, I've been invited twice to speak in Utah, uh, University of Utah and Weber State, uh, which is up in Ogden. And, you know, Mormons have the highest reproductive rate in, in the country. So I thought, okay, how am I going to talk about this stuff? Um, and I did a little research, and, and what I found out was that, well, this... Brigham Young told everybody, you know, you got to be fruitful and multiply, fill up Utah. So they had polygamy. But then the United States government was not so fond of that. In order to stay in Utah, they had to give up polygamy. But that meant that men just started impregnating the same wife over and over again. And by 1900, they had a real crisis. Uh, women were dying in childbirth because their bodies were not taking enough time to recover before they got pregnant again. Fortunately, the Mormons uh, really value education, and by this time there was a whole generation of Mormon doctors, and they started counseling women to say, you know, you've got to, for the sake of not just you and your family, but for the sake of our culture, you have to start spacing your births. So when I talked to these people, I explained that. I said, you know, 
in some ways, since you people venerate Latter-day Saints and you're not tied to these ancient liturgies like the rest of us, you may be the most flexible people on the planet for you've understood that you have to protect the mother to protect your whole culture. And so now if we're talking about mother nature, um, maybe we've reached the point where that's what we're going to have to do is really space children per family. And everyone who I had talked to, I mean, the heads were nodding because from Ogden all the way down to Park City, it's one continuous urban strip right now, and nobody likes that. I mean, that's one thing that I found hmm. that everybody has in common in the world. Everybody remembers some place that you, you used to go to, and it was not too far from where you lived, and you could go out there and you could, you know, you could walk or you could you know, enjoy the trees and look at birds, shoot birds if you like to kill birds, you know, whatever. whatever. But you go there now, and it's filled with strip malls and housing projects and uh, industrial parks. Everybody hates that. Well, those two dates in, in uh, Utah, I mean, I, I think I signed a couple hundred books in each one of them. So what I'm finding is that everybody senses that this has gotten out of hand, this, us, and yet, of course, we don't want to commit mass suicide. So there seems to be room for thinking about these things. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> question from David Clausen, who is where? Somewhere in the room, I can tell. Uh, what do you think of the notion that we are in the Anthropocene? Have humans had a geologic scale impact on the world? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I talk about it in the, uh, in the book. Um, we, one example I give is, is Africa. I mean, at one point I go back to Africa to talk about, you know, why did we evolve in the first place? And, you know, it turns out that about 8 million years ago or so, the world was locked in ice ages where so much of the moisture... Was, was, was in ice, that even though Africa wasn't covered, Africa had a drought, and the forests just became, instead of being connected all the way across Africa's midriff, there were just pockets of it. And the mutual ancestor that we share with chimpanzees, I mean, there was literally less and less space for these things to exist. So. You know, we, we, we think oftentimes, you know, we evolved to have this great vision. We climbed out of the trees and walked off in the savannah to go across the horizon. I mean, the fact was there was, a, there was a fight to see who got to have those diminishing resources. And we were the losers or our ancestors. You know, the chimpanzees are still up there. But, but we literally had to go out in the savannah and learn to stand on our own two feet so we could see lions bounding at us. And... Uh, and today, uh, just what we have done to Africa in mowing down so much forest and converting it to farmland, we've basically recreated that situation. There's no ice age going on, but the pockets of where chimpanzees now live are smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and I go visit it. In fact, I go and talk to some chimpanzees in the wild. I'm not sure they understood what I was saying, but man, I could see it in their eyes. They, they, they know what they're up against. Well, you know, it's the revenge of the, of the sapiens. We you know, finally got back at those nasty chimpanzees. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I'll teach them to treat yeah. us. 
unkind. I mean, this is such a, a long now subject and a long now talk that uh, I can't resist asking you the question that, you know, we've got three of the major engineers on a 10,000-year clock working away here, looking at the right materials and the right mechanisms and the right place to park inside a desert mountain, all this kind of stuff. Um, what does a 10,000-year clock mean to you, if anything? Well, um, first of all, taking the long view is really important. I mean, you know... I've, I do actually find it comforting to realize that in the long run, life is going to be okay. Uh, you know, I'm not a creationist, as I'm sure you've gathered, but I really understand the awe that those people feel for the power of life. And you know, they attribute it to a higher power. You know, there's no proof that it is or isn't really, but but. Uh, but what does interest me about you know this vision for going ten thousand years is first of all the hope implicit that we might mm-hmm. it might be meaningful to us, and second some of the delicious problems that it raises. I and mean, at one point I talk about whip and you do in your book too this place where we are now burying uh, waste from manufacture of mil- military uses of nuclear materials. And the same guy, John Lomborg, who designed this packet that's off on the Viking spacecraft, was hired by WIP to, um, to talk about how do we warn the future that we're burying this stuff down there? Because language mutates so fast. Like every 500 years, it's, it's, I mean, you try to talk to someone who was speaking English 500 years ago, you know, we, we can't understand each other. Or like those Norwegians who got isolated in Iceland they call that ancient Norsk Icelandic now, and Norwegians can't understand them. So, you know, so they came up with all these symbols and things like that to warn the future, and they've got a design. It hasn't been built yet. Uh, but, um, but a lot of them are all these symbols with plaques, and some of them are going to be buried, so if they dig down, someone from the future digs down there. I mean, to me, you see all these plaques and things like that. It's just, sort of, ooh, something interesting is here. You know, the idea is that it's supposedly a warning sign. They also have warnings up there in like seven languages that they think might last the longest. Navajo is one of them. Um, you know, it's, the, the fact is we can't predict the future. I mean, that's one of the most wonderful things about culture. Things change all the time. So many of the technologies... At the Columbian World's Fair in 1893, that predicted what was going to happen. They missed television. They missed computers. You know, just you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but we have to be thinking in those terms because you know the idea of posterity is one of the things that keeps us going. Okay, here's a challenging question from Linda. It says, "What are your thoughts about genetic modification?" Can nature come back in quotes after it's been genetic? Its genetic coding has fundamentally changed. Um, there's a portion in my book where I talk about ozone depletion and um, what I learned when I, I learned this down in Antarctica talking to ozone scientists is that the fact is nature is has always been undergoing genetic modification, and a lot of it's from radioactivity of one sort or another, either the background radioactivity in the Earth's crust 
or ultraviolet radiation, which is not as intense as, but still, it has been subtly changing us. Uh, genetic modification is constantly taking place. And the whole thing, we can't preserve the ecosystem. We can't spray plastic on it. It would be a museum piece at that point. Uh, change and evolution is just a constant process. And evolution is caused by a number of things. Selection for changing environmental um, situations, uh, for new competitors who show up, and also because radiation, either if it's coming from above or it's coming from below, it's just part of the picture. Uh, you know, if we start tinkering with genes here, as we're already starting to do, some of them, I think most of them are going to be fairly benign, but something might escape. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. There's, you know, we don't have a control group, an experimental group. We're all part of it. I, you know, that's an imponderable, but it's already going. It's underway. Yeah, yeah it's all an experiment without a control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Alexander Rose asks, why do you think we glorify failing species like the panda yet denigrate flourishing ones like the raccoon? Oh God, you know, I mean, I find them both equally cute. <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, very few of us had a teddy raccoon. Um, a lot of us had teddy bears that looked like pandas, so that's one of the, it's one of the reasons for pandas. But, you know, frankly, when something starts to disappear on us, uh, you know, this happens in all phases of life. You know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And um, we do sense that some of these species that are so vivid and when they start to go, not only do we miss them, but we go, oops, what's next? Um, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I'm doing in my research right now for my next book is trying to figure out, are there any species out there that, as I mentioned before, that, you know, if we pushed one too many species off the planet, is there something that we could not do without and we would be gone? What's your candidate for that as you do the research? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is pollinators. Um, I live in New England. We're having a bat crash now. You all heard about the bee crash that has been going on. Uh, birds, uh, they also help pollinate. And species, uh, you know, declining numbers of, of uh, songbirds. And a lot of this has to do with this agricultural technology. I mean, basically, agricultural technology has involved creating some amazing plants, but we have to force feed the land with chemicals either to grow them faster or to protect them out there and uh, a lot of those things are killing migrating birds um, you know there's a lot of things that we eat like grains that self-pollinate mm -hmm. so I guess we wouldn't die but I mean just think of all the things that come out of flowering plants fruit goodbye fruit you know that would be you know that would be really scary um, I don't know the answer 
Yeah, in fact, I haven't found scientists who do know, but I'm talking to lots of them all over the place. I mean, certainly there's some microbes within us that if they weren't there, uh, don't know. Um, this is one question of a set of them, presumably, and probably the audience would love to hear what the general point of the direction of the book is, if you want to talk about it. Oh, well, um, I'd like to know, because I don't think we do know, uh, what would be an optimum number of human beings? I mean, what, what is the carrying capacity of the planet? Uh, how many of us could fit on here with this planet without destabilizing the ecosystem to the point that it becomes the wild card that it's becoming? Uh, of course, it's a very complex question. At what level of consumption? You know, some people consume very little. Uh, compared to some of us here in the United States. So I, you know, I have to touch that base, but I'm also thinking, okay, let's say a European level of consumption, uh, not as extravagant as, as the U.S., but certainly much more comfortable than a lot of people uh, on the planet. So is there a way that we can find out really what that optimum number is? And, 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 and what does stabilized environment mean? Does this mean pushing no more species off the planet or just preserving the ones that are essential to us? How can we tell? You know, Peter Ward up in Washington you know, mm. uh, wrote a book in which he talked about he envisioned the future in the year 3000 and the only other species besides us are some interesting chickens and cows, you know, domesticate, variations of the domesticated creatures. He admitted there'd be some vermin, I mean, some, there'd be snakes that could fly and rats that were very adaptive and stuff like that. But, but basically, it would be a very thin ecosystem out there. The whole world would be a big barnyard. Um, interesting vision, but I'm trying to test out to find out. Is well, it, the, is Aubrey true? Green uh, had a question. Are there examples of societies or countries that are successfully shrinking their population that sort of match what you've been raising here? Yeah, I, you know, I, I mentioned two of them, Italy and Iran. Uh, their populations have... Uh, it's interesting because Italy is inadvertent. I mean, they've got this pope, you know, and this guy Berlusconi, who's really... They're literally trying to bribe women to have more babies. You know, they're offering incentives. And women are just doing, you know, what they are doing, uh, which is you know, going to school. And, uh, and look, how bad a place is Italy right now? We pay good money to go there and hang out because it's fun. You know, uh, you know it, it may be a model. In, you know, I Iran um, was... You know, yes, a very fundamentalist country, and maybe a lot of you don't want to live in fundamentalist countries. I don't myself, but they, within the framework of their religion, they came up with a way of bringing their numbers down to a much more sensible level. Unfortunately, someone's trying to undo that right now. Um, so, you know, there are some other examples. Uh, Tunisia... Um, has had for a long time good family planning. Indonesia has been one of the most explosive countries on Earth, and now there's billboards all over saying two, maybe just enough. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're, they're starting to get it. Um, in the comment I made about the Green Revolution, by the way, think about this. 
the places where it was developed is Mexico. The places where it was first tried out on big scales, India and Pakistan. Mexico, in case anybody hasn't noticed, can't feed, employ, house all of its people, and so a lot of them are trying to get into this country now. Uh, India is about to surpass China within the next 15 years as the most populous country on earth, and the fastest growing country on the planet right now is Pakistan, which I think is something we should all be a little concerned about. Uh, question from Susan will be the last question. Okay. Do many readers tell you this is an optimistic book? Um, my favorite comments, and I've seen this in some reviews, uh, uh, the Toronto Globe and Mail, I remember, called the book The Very DNA of Hope. And um, Louise Erdrich, a lot of you know her, her novels, uh, wonderful, wonderful writer. I mean, it paid me an enormous compliment um, by saying that this book was simultaneously one of the most harrowing and hopeful books she'd ever read about the environment. I mean, the harrowing part is that by extracting the human beings and seeing what nature would have to contend with, what we'd leave behind, is sort of an, a reverse way of looking at what our impact has been up until right now. And it is formidable, obviously. But the hopeful part is that not only does nature bounce back rather amazingly and surprisingly effectively and beautifully, um, you know, I noticed in your book, uh, you mentioned some of the buffer zones. And, mm -hmm. and at one point, I talk about what was once called the most contaminated place on the planet. It's kind of a euphemism because there's lots of contenders, but it, it's, it was Rocky Mountain Arsenal where we used to make nerve gas during World War II and then later became fertilizers uh, plant. And there was a lake there that ducks and geese would land on it and they'd be dead within minutes. It was so contaminated, and the, the aluminum boat that they would row out there to collect the dark carcasses, they would have to replace it every month because the bottom would corrode out. And yet, they've drained the lake, your tax dollars and mine, you know, and they've done some mitigation, but mainly, you know, they're not doing that stuff in this area. It is now one of the biggest prairie dog villages, which has attracted some of the, the biggest populations of bald eagles. It's now a national wildlife refuge. At the end of my book, in the chapter about the sea, I talk about the place where we used to burn nerve gas and also test plutonium weapons, Johnston Atoll on the far end of, of uh, Hawaii. And that is also now a national wildlife refuge. The fact is, we got terrible problems on this planet, but go outside. It's still beautiful. And we've got, ravaged and banged as it's been, we have this beautiful baseline, today's baseline, that if we just lighten up a little bit, life will do magical, awe-inspiring things. And if you, you know, if, if it inspires religion in you, that's fine, whatever it inspires in you, you know. I don't care whether you're a fundamentalist or a secularist, if we all realize that the environment is something that we have in common, you know, but let me just say one last thing in closing, mm -hmm. closing since I've just reminded myself of it. Um, at the end of the book, I very briefly touch on religion. Uh, in the book, it would have been enormous if I would have gone into all of this, but I realized that some readers 
would have felt that I had left something unanswered if I didn't touch base with religions because two of the world's biggest religions, Islam and Christianity, believe there's no such thing as a world without us because the world was made for us. And once we're, we're gone, you know, it's over. Uh, so I talked to some religious leaders and one uh, just about their ideas of what would happen. And, and one of the things that I was very, very struck by was that in three very, very different fundamentalist situations. A Korean Buddhist monk, an evangelical Christian leader in this country, and uh, a Muslim cleric in Istanbul. And, and I've just returned from a research trip to Palestine and Israel, and I heard this from a Hasidic uh, rabbi as well. I mean, it's almost the identical thing. All of these people believe the world is coming to an end. Either they're waiting for a Messiah to come real soon, or in the case of the Buddhists, it's going to start over again. But, uh, but they do believe that the world is coming to an end. And when I asked them when, each of them said, in, in, in the book, the Muslim cleric uh, is the one I quote, you know, he said, ah, that's the thing we don't know. Only God knows. But while we are still here, just as we have an obligation to keep our bodies pure and uncontaminated to be channels for prayer and to keep our houses of worship beautiful places to welcome the Spirit, we also have an obligation to keep this planet as much as possible the way that God gave it to us. And that just amazed me because that means no matter if you are a fundamentalist or an atheist or a scientist or whatever, there is one thing that we all share and that is this planet. And you remember those two Koreas, if they did this wonderful thing for the ecosystem, for the world by creating an international peace park, inevitably they would come closer to each other too and maybe it would really bring some real peace to them. Well, frankly, we all live in the DMZ. This is our DMZ. And if we all do whatever it takes to keep this a livable place, for whatever our reasons, be they religious or be they scientific or just be they ethical, be they personal, we've all got this opportunity not only to save the one thing that we all share, but perhaps to bring ourselves a little closer and finally find that peace that has been eluding us for so long. You're here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.